This is Power Pivot with Leela Sinha. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Power Pivot, the podcast where we talk about ethics, leadership, power, and community. We're having these conversations out loud in public because power can corrupt, but it doesn't have to be that way. Today's guest is Karen Hawkwood, also known as KJ Sassy Pants. KJ is known also as Saint Sassy Pants and lives at the intersection of Down Street and Starry Spiral Way. She sees more about you than you really want her to, and then uses that to pave your path into the darkness and through it to where you become all of you at once. And I just have to interject as your host that this is all entirely true. She'll see all the ways to your bones and then light them on fire so they illuminate you like a lamp. She promises nothing, offers an odd assortment of things you didn't know you wanted, and occasionally drops a jewel or a small bird. Her methods involve measurable things like coaching astrology, intellect, and vulgar language, and much more erratic and dubious things like hearing spider feet, consorting with mythical creatures, sending flowers down in the well bucket, and drawing up strange songs and laughing at her own jokes. Welcome, 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 KJ. Thank you, Leela. I'm so delighted to be here. Thank you for asking me. And I am delighted to have you here. For our listeners, I just want to be completely upfront that I have worked with KJ. And I am deeply familiar with her magic, and you'll probably hear some of that familiarity in this conversation. And both of us swear like sailors, so this is not necessarily going to get the same kind of warning as some of my other episodes, but I wouldn't necessarily expect all of the language to be kindergartner-friendly either. Not so much. Not usually. (laughs) So tell me what interests you about power. (laughs) How long do we have again? About Um, an hour and a quarter. Okay. What interests me most is it is, I believe, now see, as I'm saying this, I'm like, I have to check and make sure I'm not being hyperbolic, but I think it is at least co-equal with another thing or two as the most important, most, most impactful, much as I hate that word, dimension of human nature. And I really could make an argument with myself back and forth about it being the single most impactful dimension of human nature in the most pragmatic possible terms. The most impactful dimension of human nature in terms of how we hold it, in terms of what we do with it, in terms of it rising up naturally from within us in terms of our interactions? Which direction do you want to go? Yes. I mean, we have to pick a direction (laughs) because the answer is yes. What part of life in the most critical, urgent things that matter the most to us across any spectrum of humanity, anywhere in the world, over any part of human history, does not have power at the heart of it? I'm not going to argue with you. So, yeah, I I just I'm like, how how can anything be more important to understand, to grapple with, to build language around, to be able to see more clearly, to have ways to engage with it differently? Because I think a lot of us feel helpless and reactive when we're dealing with power in ourselves or others or just life, the world, this whole being human thing. 
how can we shift at least our experience of helplessness, even though it doesn't necessarily, the alternative is not necessarily control either. What do we do with all that? So an hour and a quarter, (laughs) we'll do what we can. (laughs) So you do a lot of client work and, and you wrote this beautiful poetic bio. If you were to say one or two more things about what you do, with people professionally in the world, what would you say? The thing that I really do the best is I get a sense, just because of my particular zone of genius, about where people have gaps or fractures. Almost always within themselves, but a lot of times it's easier to spot or we start to get a handle on it from their life, from the experience of their lives. Because being, I'm not purely a Jungian, but I have a really deep steeping in the Jungian kind of worldview, mm-hmm. in which case, you know, the, the, the main impact of that is that these concepts of inner and outer, to me, that's a false dichotomy. And so I'm not talking about the perspective that we, and I think poorly interpreted law of attraction stuff, because um, <laughs> I think whatever that is, it's, it's deeper and more subtle and more nuanced than what we normally hear. But that when, when Jung was talking about psyche, to him, it meant everything. And that's where most people balk, because in, in Western culture, our whole, and anyone who's been raised in Western culture, I understand, you know, you have like a, a beautifully kind of diverse and complex, which I love, um, <laughs> cultural set of lineages and inheritances, and a lot of people do. But the fact is that anyone, almost anyone in the world in the last hundred years has been heavily shaped by Western culture, whether we wanted to be or not. And part of Western culture is causality. It's a worldview that's completely rooted in causality. And when we begin to look at psyche as the entirety of your experience, quote unquote, inner or quote unquote, outer, causality goes out the window and most people's brains just melt out their ears. So <laughs> I, I tread lightly in terms of how I actually phrase that. But in looking at people's lives, I can start to get a sense pretty quickly of where the fractures or disconnects are in their nature, in their own internal being, using the false dichotomy of inner and outer for a minute. And what I'm after is people being all of themselves. And that is purely and without any question, an experience of paradox. And so I am really good at inviting people into a capacity for paradox because you can't be all of you without it. Which I think is part of why I so enjoy working with you because paradox Liminality and paradox are kind of at the heart of my own nature. Yes. Yeah. So when you think about this work that you do and that fracturing that you describe, how does power show up in that fracturing? Primarily in two ways, although they're kind of interrelated because everything always is. (laughs) I can't find too many things that I can treat effectively in a vacuum. A lot of that fracturing will have to do with, see, so essentially the two layers in which I work the most is that each of us is born with this very complex nature, our our core, I call it our bones. 
what sits right down at the at the core of us. But there's tension built in already to that core right when we get here. There are parts of us that don't get along well with other parts of us and that want really? radically. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I know. Shocking, right? Shocking. <laughs> um that, but they want different things than other parts of us. And so here we are, these these tiny infant creatures, already with this kind of tense situation going on internally. And I don't, by the way, see tension as bad. To me, tension is tremendously generative, but it's not comfortable, for sure. Mm-hmm. And then we come into a set of circumstances, into an environment, into a family, into whatever. And that starts putting pressure on the tension that already exists and the paradoxical qualities of our nature that already exist. And that says, we like that part, but we don't like that part of you. This part gets you rewards, but that part gets you shunning, abandonment, punishment, whatever. And then that starts to shape us. So part of what we're dealing with here in terms of power is there are parts of myself that I am uncomfortable with or afraid of. Obviously, this is not conscious when we're infants, but this is what's going on. And I don't know how to deal with that. I don't know what to do with that. And that is, in certain ways at least, a function of power. I don't have the power I feel like I need to address this condition in myself. And then, of course, there's no, I mean, we can't talk about childhood without talking about power. It's pretty much the core of both just the human developmental process. What do I have the power to do or not do? What do I have the power over or not? Who has the power over me, you know, to decide what I do or don't do, et cetera. And all of that is working on our own archetypal nature. And so it has a great deal to do with how we respond to those power situations But I also think that internal tension that we're born with, one of the things I see a lot is people being afraid of their own power, of their own true capacity. And so that gets reinforced and shaped profoundly by our life circumstances. Again, going back to the fact that childhood is largely an experience of powerlessness. But a lot of that we come in with. And when we have fractured these parts of ourselves, there are a lot, not all the time, but a lot, the parts of ourselves that we fractured and kind of tried to disown are some of the most powerful parts of us. And there's all different kinds of power. These aren't always big, raw kinds of parts of us, but we're pretty terrified of what that holds. And so it's easier to just push it off over there and say, nope, that's not me. La, la, la. I don't have any power. I don't have to deal with it. So so how do we rediscover our power as adults or as, you know, adolescents or whenever we we do that? As beings, whatever state we're in. Well, as I was saying in the beginning, the power is the single most important thing, the single most kind of relevant thing in human nature. But the other, the reason I stopped myself to see if I could really say that in good conscience, is because the other thing that is central to the work I do, that I think is actually sort of co-equal and interwoven, is identity. And I work with identity at a much, much deeper level, which is, again, this is not casting aspersions on anyone, but we're used to thinking of identity as very outward-facing, kind of what we might call demographic, 
qualities about us. I'm a mother. I'm in my 30s. I, you know, have an autoimmune illness. I am a single parent. I, you know, like that is how we shape identity. And that's not how I work with it. I work with it very much at the archetypal level, which is really way down into kind of the deep strata of human nature. And especially with the way that our world is right now, I'm coming more and more and more into the awareness of identity in everything I do. Because as much as it can sound simple to say, the process of us knowing who we are, when we know who we are, it's everything. It's everything about mental, emotional, spiritual, and often financial, pragmatic, emotional, you know, whatever, safety and stability. When we don't know who we are or when who we thought we were gets shaken and comes into doubt or is being asked to kind of shift or expand, it is honestly, I believe, the most terrifying thing that can ever happen to us short of threat of our actual lives or survival or that of someone deeply close to us. And I would put it on a par with that. And a lot of people may think that that's, that's hyperbolic or too strong of a statement. But this, uh, from what I see in people, it's not. And there's a way in which we can reflect on the kind of horrifying <laughs> situation in the world, just globally, globally, everywhere, that has power at the heart of it also has identity at the heart of it. It's who we know ourselves to be or not. So how do we find out who we are? Uh, That's, you know, again, that's a pretty complex response. But at at the root of it, always, no matter how you go about doing that, you have to be willing to ask questions of yourself that may or very likely will cause you to feel disoriented. When we don't know who we are, knowing who we are is a form of orientation. Because when we know who we are, we know how the world is. That's how everything fits into place, is a function of our identity. And so when we start to ask questions, we are consciously embarking on a potential, not to say probable, disorientation. And it is like the emotional, mental, spiritual feeling equivalent of the feeling of falling. And by falling, I don't mean like tripping over a chair. I mean falling off a building. It is that scary. And in order to reorient to something new, to something adapted, something expanded, something more accurate, We have to be able to disorient first. We literally have to come unplugged from the old identity, be in that place where we feel like we've fallen off a 60-story building, and stay with it while we reorient. And some of that process of reorientation is conscious and intentional. And some of it, I believe, my experience has shown me, is the natural, we could call it the wisdom of the psyche. It knows what it's doing. We don't have to necessarily be consciously directing this entire process. But what doesn't work, we are able consciously to override 
that natural process of adapting and growing and stop it cold. So any process that you undertake to find out more about who you really are, you are basically saying yes to that disorientation. And that's why most people won't do it. That sounds like it requires an enormous amount of faith. I think it requires a couple of things. Faith is in the top three. And faith can be in whatever you have it in. Mm -hmm. This is one of the things, again, faith is one of the archetypal qualities that I look at and work with with people. And in my symbolic language, I use the language of Western astrology as part of my symbol set, but I also use a lot of myth and fairy tale and that kind of root of capital S story that is not only part of human nature, but part of our relationship with that which is beyond the human. And faith can look like a lot of different things, but it doesn't matter so much what it's in as long as you have some, as long as it's in you somewhere, somehow. And part of the faith has to be that this too shall pass. Because boy, when we're in the heart of that disorientation, especially when it's like a really ginormous level of change, that does not feel true at any level of our being. (laughs) It feels like this is it. I'm fucked. This is how it's going to be forever. And that faith, even when it seems stupid and pointless and it's a cruel lie and all of those things that we feel, to continue to hold to the faith that this too shall pass, that there is a way through this, it's often what gets us there. I think having help, I mean, through my experience in my own life, um, <laughs> having help is really, really beneficial. But I also don't want to set up, I don't, I'm not at all a fan of this idea that people can't do this themselves, that you have to pay somebody because first of all, that's a classist privilege attitude. Not everybody has the option. A lot of people that need it the most don't have the option of paying someone to help them, to walk with them through this process. And I don't think it's required, but I do think it can be extremely helpful. And I think it's important for us to recognize that since time immemorial, people have been accompanied on these kinds of journeys, and um, it often hasn't been paid. We have communities, we have friends, we have family units, we've had extended families in the past, and we're probably moving toward that again. We have chosen families. You know, my experience is that we pretty much all need company. But what form that company takes can be wildly varied. Absolutely. Absolutely. The other thing, though, that I want to point out that, and not to you, because I know you know this, but I think it's worth remembering all culture shift, everything that's kind of the rule of the natural world. It is this too shall pass, whatever it is. And so growth and adaptation are part of that. And with growth and adaptation come, ideally, both loss and gain. So I'm not enshrining some distant past as the golden era. I think there's a huge, (laughs) huge danger in doing that on a lot of fronts. That said, we have moved profoundly over the last, you know, two, 3,000 years maybe out of what I would now call an intact indigenous culture. And in intact indigenous culture, again, without idealizing or enshrining them into something they're not, there are people whose job it is to do this. And they're called different things and they have unique differences and I'm not going to erase all that because I hate that. But that role, yes, it wasn't formally paid usually, but those people were supported by the community. That's true. And that's how they were able to do that sacred work, whether someone had 
an offering for them, a goat or a basket of plantains or a fresh caught fish or whatever it was, or they didn't. But those people were not starving if somebody didn't have a fish to give them (laughs) because the community made sure that they were taken care of because they were doing work that supported the whole community by helping people to, to either remain whole or when they needed to sort of come apart so they could come back together, there was somebody or somebody's who were trained and skilled in helping people do that. And I will also point out that there are still clergy in the United States who periodically get paid with a dozen eggs or a, yeah. a fresh chicken. And there are profound problems with that model. Sure. Uh, but we haven't moved, I think, as far as people sometimes think we have from the Absolutely. community knows it needs to support this person because yes. this person stitches it together. And simultaneously, I think that work has been tremendously devalued over the last mm, couple hundred years, since the, I would say since the inception of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, we have this idea that those things can be either commodified or automated, and they can't really. Commodified, automated, and or separated from one another because clergy anyone with an overt spiritual responsibility and privilege, but also that has been separated from medicine, Mm -hmm. from the kind of spiritual work that's turned more towards the others, more towards whatever that is, right, that's beyond us, as it is towards the human side of things. Community mediating being a role of what we might call eldership or mm-hmm. contribution of expert opinion <laughs> to the to community <laughs> struggles or issues. These are all things that were combined. These are all things that worked within the same vein of the community. And mm-hmm. they got fractured out and confined and siloed as they were also getting commodified and as they were being devalued and therefore automated where they could be. And so This question of identity, because again, I'm not saying that there weren't issues with intact indigenous cultures and the little fragments of them that we still have. There were, and we can't lose track of that. But there used to be someone that you could go to when you started feeling strange in your own skin and disconnected from your life in a way that you could not put your finger on. And they would be able to figure out what the hell was going on and either stabilize you or help you come apart (laughs) in the most efficient and workable way possible, as odd as that sounds, and work with you through the process of then coming back together in whatever, wherever you needed to go. And we've really lost access in in all these ways to, to that skill. I would say that that is where I have landed in my own practice that the combination of formal professional religious leadership training and coaching training and bodywork training and you know if you sort of stack all of the things that I have learned and the way that I came to this stack of learning was I would start doing something and I would realize it was related or linked to something else and so I would get trained in that and then I would get trained in the next thing I noticed and the next thing and the next thing and I feel like as I come into my I'm I'm about to turn 45. As I come into my late 40s, I have accrued enough of this stack of seemingly disparate skills. Seemingly disparate, right? That's the thing. They're not. You're trying to weave together by innate instinct 
what got chopped apart and scattered to the winds hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of years ago. Right. And I'm picking up pieces from, as you mentioned, my father is Indian. My I have one entire side of my family that's Indian. And so I'm picking up pieces from the Hindu and the Indian background I've got. And I'm picking up pieces from the Trace British Isles. My mom is white. So I'm picking up pieces from the Trace European history pieces. And I'm looking around and learning from other things that I'm surrounded by and that I'm coming in contact with. But most of it is. It has to be intuitive because we don't have a, a clear, direct lineage back to that holistic healing. But in fact, that holistic healing is critical. It's all we've got. So, and where I'm coming, I want to circle back to something you said earlier, because actually two things. First of all, the image I keep getting of this transformational moment where you disorient is the image of a cat falling off the top of a building. And we have to have faith that as cats, we know how to find our feet by the time we hit the ground. But the other thing that I wanted to go back to a little more deeply is the power of story. So of course, this podcast is about power. It's about claiming power. It's about knowing our power. It's about understanding ourselves as as holders of power instead of seeing ourselves as helpless victims of larger systems. And and part of that is the power of story, the power of narrative, the power of who tells the story and and claiming the power to tell the story. This whole controversy online that shows up every few years about selfies and whether they're egotistical, horrible things or if there's something else. And I always come back with, no, this is our ability to frame our own narrative. And for me, the story is important. Story is a historically incredibly important tool in this toolkit that you're talking about. And the ability to narrate our own stories, both going back and going forward. For me, it's this enormous locus of power. How do we write the story that we want to walk into? Absolutely. And yet we've also lost our relationship with the body of story that has flowed like a river through all of human existence. And this is where I struggle because I want everyone to have that sense of power of their own narrative. And when we are trying to recover that or feel our way back to that, but we we don't have that foundational ground to both stand on and learn from, we kind of are just making shit up. And I really am careful about saying that because I'm not shitting on anyone trying to rewrite their own story. I'm not. I never will. It is one of the most, I completely agree with you. It's one of the most important things we can do. But our relationship with myth, because myth to me are the stories that we never stop telling. Very simple definition. We have millions, uncounted millions of stories throughout human history that have been told for a while, and then they fall away. And when we consider how recent printing, putting Mm -hmm. down of stories is in terms of the scope of human history, we realize that the falling away of stories has been part of this organic calling and evolution of what we remember and what we tell ourselves about ourselves. And we've lost that. We've lost access to that. We've lost the importance of it in a lot of cases, not everywhere, thankfully, because that river is running uninterrupted. It's just that it's almost gone underground and it only pops up in some kind of little isolated springs and wells here and there. I feel like storytelling, though, 
is so still so present. We look at the fan fiction world. People don't like the story they were told. They tell a new one, but they tell a new one on foundations, right? It's it, Fan fiction is one of those things that embodies that progressive evolution of story. Or if you look at what people typically call the folk process in music, where you start with a ballad and then verse seven gets changed and verse eight gets dropped because it's going to offend the person who's listening. And then verse eight comes back, but in a different form and with different characters. And suddenly those characters are gay because, well, you know, it is the 21st century. And I feel like there are ways in which our fear of losing exactly what was true. I mean, there's, there's, there's such a Western whiteness <laughs> to this idea oh, yeah. that there's there's one right narrative and that if we can oh, write it down and God, preserve it. Yes. Yep. Then we'll have the one right answer. And we'll have the truth, capital T. And I feel like the power of truth and the power of narrative is really in the sense of the story, in the feeling of the story, rather than in the exact details. That's often true, but not always. Because there are certain, de- this is why myth, this is why my definition of myth is the stories we never stop telling. Because if you lose enough of those details, the story becomes a different story. It does. And that matters. No, because then it loses its way. If we lose the critical details, the story has lost its heart. It's lost its aliveness. They are not infinite. They, are ad- they, they evolve, but they do not just infinitely morph and remain what they are, what they have always been. They lose their continuity and lose their linear, not linearity, but lineage. And so this is where it gets to be really, really important how we deal with this, because all the levels that you're talking about story and morphing song lyrics about creating characters that look like you, that love like you, that live or don't live like you, in order to be able to see ourselves in these stories that mean everything to us. That, yes. But to me, that's the layer where this underground river comes all the way up to the surface of the land. And that doesn't make it unimportant or less than. It's not. But if we, trying to think how to say this, if we just take that water out of the spring and like carry it away and try to create another river with it, that's not going to (laughs) work. That's not how this works. That's not how myth and story works. And so understanding, because here's the other thing, all the levels on which you're talking about, about your relationship with story and the examples that you were using, those are all about the human dimension of experience. But the purpose of story has always been to also open a door to the others and to the other worlds and to facilitate the relationship that humans have with that which is beyond human. And that's the piece that has almost completely gotten lost. That's the piece that I have become completely fascinated by in about the last, truly about the last three, almost four years since I found the work of Dr. Martin Shaw. And then a year or so later, I got the chance to see him live. And the guy is legendary for a reason. And he is of like, just people are just completely, I mean, he just knocks people sideways. And particularly if you see him live. And I was like, huh. I mean, his work knocked me sideways, just the written work in the first three books that he's written. 
And then I actually went and studied with him for most of a week last year. And it wasn't until I was finally in that kind of sustained environment, because most of his public work is a, like a couple of hours on a Friday night and then mm-hmm. like six hours on a Saturday kind of thing. What he does, what he actually does, is when he begins to open the story, he invites the gods into the room. And you know it and you feel it. It is like nothing else I've ever experienced. And the story work, the story itself is as much of and for the gods, whatever that is, whatever that means, as it is for the human people in the room. Isn't that always how it is? No. 100% (laughs) no. It's the only way I know how to tell a story. It's incredibly rare, Leela, is the truth. And I mean, so, that's, that's why I like storytelling. That's why I was drawn to it in the first. I think that's why a lot of people are drawn to it. But because we've gotten so, like, I mean, most people think the idea of there being other worlds is nonsense. So true. treating story as a way to open the doorway, actually open the door to other worlds is a nonsensical concept and sort of off-putting in the first place. And that's when story gets reduced And I'm only saying reduced. I'm not saying reduced from a perspective of judgment or, you know, elitism or any of this bullshit. But that, again, terrible metaphor. I'm usually better with metaphors than this. But it would be like taking a leaf off the biggest, oldest oak in the world and trying to make that the totality. When we are working primarily or only with the human narrative and including the personal human narrative, our own stories, we are trying to reach back through that to something deeper but a lot of times it's just there's a gap and we can't get across it and this is partly because that river has gone so far underground certainly in the last the scientific and industrial revolution is a huge turning point in human history i don't think anyone would argue with that but in a way i could trace this back probably 2500 years and so I think if we're not opening the door to the other worlds, I think if we're not coming into that kind of right relationship again, not just with our own humanity, not just with our understanding of ourselves or dare I say our obsession with ourselves, but our proportion, our position within a much larger context than anyone is used to thinking of (laughs) in this day and age, I think there's a fracture. So then let's talk about speaking power to power. Okay. If indeed we exist in a world that exists in conversation with the others, and if we are capable whether or not we've been doing a particularly consistent or good job of it, if we are capable of touching that whatever that is, other world, whatever it is, opening that door, if we have the power to open that door, because I think so many contemporary religious narratives say that we don't have the power to open the door. We have the power to go petition or beseech at the closed door. And it's only the the powerful entity on the other side of that door that has the ability to open it. Aha. Uh-huh. And we see it 
in so many different forms of the story, right? We see it in in the stories of, of humans petitioning gods. We also see it in the story of potential vowed religious going and petitioning the vowed religious community to accept them. You know, there's this, I can't open the door story that's really, I think, only endemic to contemporary religious narrative. Yes. Because I think older religious narrative and other older narratives, almost always there's a way for the person on the outside to open the damn door. (laughs) Absolutely. The idea that that door only goes one way is like to any anyone before what I think you and I both are understanding as what you're share, sharing as contemporary religious narrative, that's an absurd idea. <laughs> like, right. What? I mean, there's no guarantee that the, the entity on the other side of that door will be happy that you opened the door. Let's be clear. Exactly. But <laughs> there's no guarantees about what's going to happen when that fucking door opens. But but you, you are get to not. Do it. You are not stuck with your hands tied on the wrong side of an of a closed door. Absolutely. Just not a thing. So if we understand ourselves as holding the power to open the door, and we understand that that entity on the other side also holds power, a different kind of power, Mm -hmm. that we want to be in connection or conversation or dialogue or something with, and we're willing to take the chance and have the faith in that ourselves to manage the disorientation of opening the door between the worlds, because that's, that's where that disorientation lives. Mm -hmm. What do we need to do as human merely beings? Thank you. Cummings, right? What do we need to do to be in that conversation? Well, we need to be in a state of sovereignty which has healthy sovereignty has also a healthy understanding built into it of what we are not and what we don't have power over. So to me, I've never tried to formularize my understanding of sovereignty, but I would say it's a clear and accurate understanding of what is us and what is ours, ours to do, ours to have authority over whatever, balanced by what is not us and what is not ours. Because, again, this relationship between the human world and the the beyond human world is not actually predicated on hierarchy. We are not less than. And that right there is a revolutionary idea. That right there is a deeply challenging idea. We've spent a couple thousand years, if nothing else, in, su- in other places more than a couple thousand years, being supplicants and being taught, being conditioned to be in a less than position. And, you know, without, again, we need a lot more than another hour to keep diving into that one. But that doesn't go well. This doesn't go well to put it mildly. Well, I think that's an interesting, I mean, I, I recognize that every question I ask on these podcast oh, interviews yeah. could itself lead to, Generate. to the, yep. Hall of Mirrors infinite questioning. But I think that it's really important to engage this question of what it means to be trained to think of ourselves as supplicants. Mm-hmm. 
because if we're going to talk about power, we can't not talk about that, right? right? Because then that's permeated that kind of very destructive hierarchy. And I'm not necessarily a person who thinks hierarchy is always destructive, which again, I realize that can be a controversial position and get in, into all kinds of fun things. But certainly destructive hierarchy is what we're most familiar with. And that's permeated every aspect of our culture for a while now. If we think about being a supplicant, how is that not threaded through our, our entire cultural framework? Right. And how are we not, going back to what you said at the very beginning, how are we not trained into that as children, right? And and so then I want to talk about the intersection of supplicant and surrender and submission and humility. Right. Absolutely. Because again, part of my definition of sovereignty is knowing what's not yours, what you don't have authority over. Right. And so how do you know what you have authority over and what you don't? My journey with that, which has been entirely in the context of white Western culture until fairly recently, I mean, a lot of it was just completely dysfunctional, not to overuse an overused phrase, but part of it in the absence of the guidance of both functional elders, which we completely lack anymore, and functional, I don't know what you'd call them. There's been so much appropriation of terminology that I'm not at all okay with participating in. Even the term shaman is, a, is an appropriation because that comes from a specific language right. and that specific role of a lot of the peoples of Siberia. But I think we could maybe say use the term medicine people in a broad meaning, you know, kind of anyone whose role kind of falls into that bridging the worlds and keeping the relationship between the worlds intact, whatever that role is, we lack mm -hmm. those people too. And so those were the people who could guide us in helping us know the difference between humility and abdication of sovereignty and abdication of self. And so in this modern world, I think it's a lot of trial and error. And then we have to, somewhere along the way, we have to get exposed to the idea, whether it's a book, whether it's a friend, a practitioner, a, a documentary, you know, whatever, that we've been trained to be supplicants. How do you get out of a box if you don't know you're in the box? Water wet fishes, yeah. Right. So a lot of people never do because they just never have that catalytic moment. And I wonder, and this is something that I, I notice in myself, that as I'm trying to unlearn this supplicant mentality that, oh my God, is insidious. Yes. Every fucking where. Yes. Can I just say, especially yes. speaking of the intersection of identity, especially for someone with a stack of marginalized identities. Yes. It's everywhere. I'm supposed to be grateful that somebody let me wake up in the morning. Exactly. And I'm sorry, but I'm done with that. <laughs> Can we have an amen from the choir? <laughs> I don't think that it's my responsibility. to, And, and people cast that as humility. Mm -hmm. It's not. It's it's really humiliation. 
I mean, right. to me, humiliation is the shadow of humility, and that's precisely what it is. I'm going to hum- humiliate you and make you be grateful for it. But what I notice is that in my wrestling to get, and I use wrestling in that, like wrestling in the desert with yes. the angel kind yes. of way. I love right? that in- that's immediately where my mind went. <laughs> well, and this is that exact moment. Right? Yep. It, it, in my wrestling with this with this emergence, there's this other piece where I still have to remind myself and like calm calm myself because it actually generates a kind of panic. I have to actually remind myself that it's okay to learn. It's okay to follow someone. It's okay to put myself in a posture of and I'm I'm hesitant to use the word submission exactly, but in mm-hmm. in, in that posture of of postulate yeah. of apprentice, it's okay yeah. for me to be apprentice to someone. And there are so many layers to why that's hard. One of them is if you're a marginalized person in this world, you have to show up twice as fancy and three times as prepared mm-hmm. just to be treated like you might be able to be equal. Yeah, just to get in the door, basically. Not even just to, just to, yeah. I mean, just to get the, just to get them to open the door, right? Well, because, yeah, because you might get in the door and they'd still take you for cleaning staff. I mean, right. <laughs> hey, just to be blunt. So I, le- I legit was the senior minister, the only minister at a congregation. And I was in the church alone and the minister's office door was open. And I walked out of that door to greet some people who had walked in the door of the church. It was in a small community where we left the door unlocked when anybody was in the building. Mm-hmm. And they asked me if I was cleaning staff and where they could find the minister. Yep. And I, I just kind of looked at them and said, I am the minister. And they looked back at me and had no words to produce. Like yep. nothing came out of their mouth. So yeah, they might literally open the door and take me for cleaning staff. Yes. And there's nothing wrong with being cleaning staff. Like being cleaning no, no, staff no. We're is not, important. We're not demeaning that either, for sure. But and, it's still a failure to recognize, you know, the twice as fancy and three times as prepared even, which is right. shit to begin with. But, you know. Right. That's the thing is that there's no shame in any of the work that's required in the world. No. And yet we still believe that certain pieces of the work in the world are closed to certain kinds of people. And we make stories about what those people, who those people are and what they look like and how they act and how we will know them. Yep. Yep. How can you recognize them? How do we categorize people? But that's a function again, without um, over idealizing indigenous cultures the whole framework of every part makes the whole of an integrated whole that is not hierarchical. It is a lot. That's just such an alien concept to most of us. And certainly it's fundamentally alien to the world that we live in. And I feel like sometimes it's a good idea to everyone decide that one person should be the leader. One person should be in charge. And this is the thing that's interesting though, about that Leela is that in, in, cultures that have a worldview of every part makes the whole, it doesn't mean that certain people don't have more 
temporal power or spiritual power than others, but it means that they are not treated with a difference in value. Right. So this is where I'm not saying I'm, a, you know, the idea that human beings can actually be, uh, what would we call that? Perhaps a hundred percent democratic, not really a thing, but you know, that theoretical egalitarian. egalitarian, the idea that every, that human beings can do what human beings need to do to survive completely by community consensus. Oh God, please save me from that world. <laughs> I'm, I'm not saying it's impossible in small groups because I've seen it work laboriously, but work in small groups. But we've been trying to figure out how to conduct our affairs as humans for a long time. <laughs> and mm -hmm. we've tried a whole lot of different ways to do that. And putting certain people more in charge on a temporal basis or on a spiritual basis, because like some people just have in, in ways that were recognized by the community, they were, if you will, born to the skill and therefore the mandate to be the bridge between worlds. So they had more authority in that realm than maybe other people in the community did. But they weren't intrinsically more valued than the people who were collecting the grown food or hunting the food on the move or weaving the thatch for the roofs or washing the clothes in the river. It's just that within their sphere, they had the authority that they had earned and demonstrated the right use of that they were in an ethical kind of right relationship position with regards to that authority. And that helped everything work better for everyone, but they weren't more important. They weren't more valued for their contribution. That's the difference to me. I feel like that's really tricky territory because because of what I know of the cultures that I know that maybe have a more continuous line mm -hmm. back, there are definitely hierarchies of value that are embedded in a lot of those cultural systems. Yeah. But the thing that I'm interested in, that I'm more interested in, is how do we, and I think, I think part of this is that it's not, it's not one size fits all. There's a, an interesting line of thought that goes around periodically in religious academic circles that I've heard some uh, very interesting and complex conversations about this, that, and this is sort of outside my realm of expertise. But there's this, this idea that the rules for Buddhism were created for men, and that if you were to create a Buddhism for women in a patriarchal culture, you would create a Buddhism that required almost the opposite things of people to be louder, to speak up more, because what it's supposed to do is balance out what you're doing too much of. Uh -huh. And whether or not that's a valid argument in the case of Buddhism, I think it's a very interesting kind of thought experiment more broadly mm -hmm. to say, in what ways are the things demanded of us different according to who we are as we are shaped by our cultures, as well as as we are shaped by ourselves. Um, so for me, that struggle of how do I balance a considered humility with this externally imposed <laughs> impulse to humiliation that comes from so much of the culture I'm surrounded by and simultaneously claim my voice and take up space and 
still allow for the still small voice within or the booming voice from the clouds or whatever it is this week, because my experience of the divine is extremely diverse. (laughs) Mm-hmm. And what does it mean that I had to step so completely out of the traditional structures of authority in order to even be able to speak freely about that in public and not jeopardize myself? Because you're, you're, I think humility is clean humility, right? Which we're both is what we're both talking about here actually sh- shatters us out of that zero sum hierarchical power over structure in some sort of irredeemable ways <laughs> and the the hierarchical power over structure will not forgive that it will not tolerate that and it will not forgive that right and so it's a it's i think actually the experience of clean humility is a fairly radical act <laughs> honestly because a lot of the way that we try to respond to the humiliation of that that power over that those higher in the pyramid are of intrinsically more value is to try to claim ourselves and our sovereignty and our authority in a way that is very inflexible because we're trying to anchor ourselves into something that does not involve us getting pounded by and and drained dry by whoever's above us. But there's no room for humility in that because within that grappling with the pyramid, if we're still in that structure and trying to find a different place to stand in that structure, we can't allow that. Is this making sense? I'm kind of just feeling my way into it. Yes. Yeah, I think it is making total sense. And what it's bringing up for me now is you're talking about us wanting to anchor and simultaneously needing to have faith as we're disoriented, as we unplug from previous identities or previous self-understandings or cultural understandings or contexts and allow ourselves to to be reformed, right? I talk about the experience of seminary as being one where they you arrive at seminary, they take you all apart into a pile of Legos, put you in a box and hand you back to yourself and say, here, assemble a minister out of these pieces. Yeah. And that's what the process of ministerial formation was like for me. And 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 that even saying it that way uh, you know construes that it's done and it's never done of you, course. you put it you put yourself back together and then you're like oh these pieces clearly don't fit here and you like take out all the little yellow pieces and you <laughs> assemble them and you look at them stare at them for a while and then you're like okay i think one goes on my arm and one goes on my butt and like yep and and so it's this constant formation and reformation and part of the process of ministerial formation it, for me and for i think a lot of my colleagues has been to learn to be in that constant process of reformation and to yes. be okay with the discomfort of that, that. Per- persistent disorientation. Persistent, continual. If we're really doing our work, if we're really being, um, continuing to become who we are genuinely becoming, as awkward as that is linguistically, it is perennial. It is ongoing, this coming apart and coming together, disorienting and reorienting. And so building our skill, that it's not just a like, oh, thank God that's over. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> oh, you, I made well, it through. And this concept of midlife crisis, I think, is the idea that it's supposed to be done and then, okay, you can do it one more time, but then you're really done. And and I, my experience of quote unquote midlife crisis is that it's just continuous. <laughs> 
There are peaks and valleys. And again, because of my astrological work, I can track a lot of those with people, whether they're personal cycles or their age-related cycles, because there are both. But does it stop? No. My experience of midlife, and I'm 52, has been 100%, I would say probably certainly since about 45, but I think even around 40, my process of midlife has been the complete and horrifying realization that everything I was taught to believe that life was, was a lie. (laughs) I am dead serious. It has been the unraveling of one lie after another. Compound lies, compounding lies, compounding lies about what life was supposed to be like. I sort of feel like I've been doing that since I was 12. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a way in which I've been doing it all my life. But there was a kind of magnificent, there was like an exponent that was added (laughs) in life, partly because, first of all, for all that I grew up in a relatively progressive, albeit very white and unconscious kind of family and cultural matrix, nobody told me a goddamn thing about menopause. I can't even believe that now. I am so angry about that still. Because it just about took me to my knees because I had no, I was, I had no preparation. I had no understanding of what the hell was happening. How is that even a thing? And did you know that Heather Corinna is A, writing a book about that and B, running a Facebook group about that? Uh, I don't think I did. And thank you to Heather because do we need that? Holy crap, do we need that? But yeah. that's just one example, Leela. Like the lie that that by the time you're in your 40s, you're supposed to be an adult who, this is one of my favorite phrases that I love to hate, has your shit together. <clears throat> what does that mean even? It doesn't, it, it doesn't, it turns out it doesn't mean anything because whatever it is that's presented to us as having your shit together, nobody has their shit together. I'm serious. Nobody does. Not the way we were taught we were supposed to. So... If if we want to, I'm going to, I can tell I'm kind of getting ranty about that. So just to loop back, (laughs) come back into the flow of what we're, what we're about here. The power to, which is one of the ultimate forms of power, right? To define ourselves is possibly the most sovereign act we can do. At the same time, part of what I see with people, and this is where I got a lot of, like a lot of my clients come in in this state, is they have been trying desperately to make themselves through that power of will, which is such a uniquely Western expectation, right? Mm -hmm. That purely through, I am the captain of my own destiny and purely through the power of my will and a lot of self-help books, I can make myself anyone I want to be. And that it's my responsibility to do that. And that if I'm not, if I don't become who I want to be, then it's my failure. Because the captain of destiny, my responsibility also equates to if that doesn't work, it's 100% my failure. And it's because I'm stupid or wrong or didn't pay somebody enough money or whatever. That's unfortunately kind of how that goes. And this is where, to me, a huge part of our relationship with power, since that's part of our, our topic and our focus here, is knowing and I'm going to circle back in a way to that that sovereignty thing. It's knowing who you are, but not who, just who you are, who who you can be and who you're not and who you can't be. And instead of seeing I can't become that thing that I want to be as a failure, a failure of your will, a failure of your whatever, to see it as um, 
a recognition of what is true about you. And as such, that is a source of tremendous power. Knowing who we're not and deciding to stop chasing that is one of the most powerful things I've ever done. And it has made me more powerful in the world in every way I can think of. Yeah. So I think in terms of, you know, people and their relationship with power, um, the, the great, one of the great lies of Western culture is we get to be anybody. And we know that's a lie in terms of systems of oppression and cultural power, for sure. But it's also a lie from the And See, this is where, and I, I know we're running close to the end, so I can't go into a long disquisition about this. But this, to me, is where myth, like the real deep heart of that underground river of myth, tells us this over and over and over and over and over in thousands of ways. Mm-hmm. Part of what those stories are saying is you don't get to actually live the life you want until you become who you actually are. Not who's who you want to be, not who somebody told you you would be, not who you thought would get the prize or the, you know, whatever. But to be who you truly are, then things open up. And we've lost that, that message. We've Not that I think myth is just about that, but we've lost that knowing that we need to discover our own medicine for lack of a better word, right? For And I don't mean to appropriate that, but that idea that each of us has that, that which makes us distinct and unique. And we have to become more of that. The trick is the paradox because becoming that is treated in the, especially in the sort of self-help and therapeutic world. And we can never lose track of the fact that we're most of us are operating in capitalist cultures where our only value culturally is to, you know, generate more wealth for the wealthy. And the more linear we are as people, generally, the more we can be fit into the machine as a cog and keep turning the wheels. And so as we come to know ourselves in that paradoxical way, that's that's the avenue to our own power to me. It's just it's not at all a comfortable process. So I'm going to throw one more monkey wrench in because I love to do that. Awesome. It's my favorite thing, which is community. Okay. For me, the presence of the right community is everything. It gives us the reflection that we need to discover who we are and who we are not. It gives us a context in which our power can seed and grow and bloom in ways that are community-mediated, that we get guidance from being in community. We get the pressures of community can be very difficult, but if we have the right community, the pressures of community can help us form ourselves into more richly who we wish to be not in the sense of becoming someone we're not, but in the sense of living into the value system that we want to hold, no matter what the tools we have for that are. A hundred percent. That's a lot of what I was trying to say earlier. And I think I just maybe wasn't saying it so well. So completely, completely agree. And so for me, 
when I look at how do we claim the power we have to open that door from our side? How do we handle what happens when that door opens? How do we handle the disorientation? How do we have the faith we need to have? Like for me, it's taken a while for me to be able to articulate this because I know how toxic the wrong community of the wrong context can be. And yet I think it's really just about how do we find and gather the right community around us? And I think, yeah, it's hard for me to come up with like a really snappy rubric for that, (laughs) except I will say this, your right community will always appreciate and and value and ask for more of your complexity. That is one of the biggest and I think most powerful and most important distinctions between if we want to use this phrasing right community and wrong community is simplicity versus complexity. It's people who want to want you to be only the parts of you that they're comfortable with that all line up. They want you to just be one thing because they know how to deal with that versus people who absolutely delight in all of the different facets of you, including the ones that seem like they're actively contradictory. I don't believe that's ever the case, but it can feel like it. Sure. I mean, paradox. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think you're pointing to something so critical uh, certainly for the people that are in my close circle. Mm-hmm. Mine too. <laughs> because because I think that there are people who really are called to much less liminality and much less complexity. Sure. Well, I don't and, know about complexity. Liminality, I would agree with you. <clears throat> complexity, not. Well, perhaps. I think there are people who's whose calling is more about streamlining and simplifying and, and rubbing off the rough edges. And that is not my calling. Mm-mm. And it is not the calling of most of the people around me. And it tends to make us, you know how when you when your hands are dry and you run your hands over like stockings or silk or something and they catch? Mm-hmm. I think that we we are that texture. Like we're a texture that catches on things that are smooth. And there's nothing wrong with being that texture. It's very useful. It does lots of interesting things in the world, but it does tend to make the people who are called to that level of smoothness uncomfortable. And that's part of what I help people navigate is how do you, how do you navigate when one of you is, is more smooth and one of you is more rough? Yeah, that's an interesting idea because smoothness, if I'm catching what you're meaning from the context here, is a kind of oversimplification. It's a it's a kind of flattening things down so that all the edges are off it. Which yeah, is but I don't easier. have any I don't have any judgment about it. I think that I think that there are people for whom that's their calling and there are places where that's really important and necessary. Yeah, I guess we'd probably have to get into definition of calling because I think maybe I'm picking up on that <laughs> being the word that that maybe is taking us in different directions because I don't think that flattening our complex I think everyone and and I can say this from having worked with the number of people I've worked with and looking at the chart as a kind of at least a kind of map of the territory 
the map is never the territory. And I don't mistake the chart that I'm looking at for the person who's in front of me. But the chart is a remarkable window into a person's complexity. And I can tell you point blank, I've never seen charts that are somehow more complex than others. They always are. They always are. <clears throat> I think some people are less successful at trying to avoid their own complexity than others. That I will say. That I will say. I think there's people who figure out how to avoid their own complexity, but that never works in the end. I mean, there, there's no good outcome to that. So if we talk about calling as your work in the world, as opposed to becoming who you're, who you truly are, I think that there are people who's, who's calling in that sense is to kind of streamline and smooth things. Yes, but that's not an absence of complexity. Just my take. Yeah, I, I feel like this is another whole hour of conversation. Oh, without because, question. Because there's... When are we ever going to run out of things to talk about, Leela? <laughs> uh, I hope never, because I really I enjoy never. being connected with you in all kinds of ways. Absolutely. So, um, but I do think that, that, that a lot of the challenges we have in building community are challenges with this roughness and this smoothness, this valuing. For me, I actually value that texture. I value that having that texture on the outside. I value, um, I value the ways in which I sometimes catch on the world and the world catches on me. And I walk around with little bits of fluff from <laughs> whatever I brushed up against and I don't mind losing bits of myself in the same way. Like I don't mind, I don't mind that there's some abrasion on me as well because of that. That give and take feels feels like part of my aliveness. And there are people for whom that's just not the way they operate. It's not who they are. It's not how they want to move through the world. And those conflicts between it's okay for this to be rough versus no, if it's rough, it should be made smooth. The challenge that we have in the ways that we interact and the ways that we develop our systems because of that one thing are so, so incredibly interesting and also unnecessary. We don't need to have conflict over that. Mm -hmm. We can understand that there are contexts where fine silk is the right fabric, and I'm leaning on fabric because I know you've done a lot of work with fabric. There are contexts where fine silk is the right fabric, and there are contexts where heavy canvas is the right fabric, and there are contexts where grip tape is the right fabric. That's exactly <laughs> it. Yeah, yeah. I was going to like a steel mesh or something. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And sometimes you can do something unexpected. You can, you know, a while back they were producing knitting yarn that had a, a line of steel wire through it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and you can do incredibly beautiful things with yarn with steel in it. And that's not always the right material. If you're going through TSA, probably not. <laughs> yep. Yeah, no question. I mean, that would be, like you said, that would be a whole, because I'm like, oh, this is an interesting place we've never gone before. And so now I'm like, I want to be like, tell me more. And right. we'll be here for another hour and a half. <laughs> right. And I'm not that good an editor. Like if I had to edit another hour and a half down to an hour and a quarter, I would be in trouble. I, I had originally intended to do these interviews and keep them to about 30 or 40 minutes. And every single one of them has gone long. So I just decided that my podcast is an hour and a quarter to an hour and a half. Right. That's uh, not how intensives it, work. Hello. Right. <laughs> 
right? It's not. And I was that hoping was cute I could that like, you thought you could do that, but yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I'm just owning that I live in the Bay Area, and these are Bay Area length commute podcasts. There you go. Brilliant. <laughs> the pro. It's just that's all it is, right? It's just like you said with the textures. It's just getting the right thing for the right fit. And if you live in the Bay Area, I guarantee you, an hour and a half on the road is nothing, because that's right. what I used to do when I lived there. So. <laughs> All right. Well, is this a good place to wrap? Is there anything you want to do to finish up here? Yeah, I was just going to ask you if you have any last words that you want to leave people with, any last thoughts about power that you didn't get to shoehorn in that you think are critical for people to sit with as we go. Only that I would say that the path into your own power, which you know isn't about just, just being able to grapple better in the pyramid, it's about being able to fully inhabit yourself. The path to that is the path of disorienting and reorienting. And it's not that fast. <laughs> so it's really the process of disorienting, coping with being disoriented for who knows how long, and then reorienting in fits and starts. And if you learn to develop your capacity to do that, to be uncomfortable in that way, it will serve you better than anything else I can think of. So however you can do that, cultivate that. Excellent. And where can people find you if they want to work with you, if they want to know more about what you think, where will they look? They can find me on my website at karenhawkwood.com. And my name is K-A-R-E-N and then H-A-W-K-W-O-O-D. And you can find me on Facebook as KJ Sassy Pants. I think there's two, but you'll know the one that's me. <laughs> and I'm open to new friends. I'm not anywhere near my friend limit. And I, as long as people seem, you know, even reasonably simpatico, I'm happy to have new people in my community. And I do a lot of work there. I do a lot of writing on Facebook. I do a lot of sharing on Facebook. And this is why I don't, I'm not so much in other like Twitter and Instagram, because they're not so good for conversation. And conversation is my favorite way of engaging with people as well as the teaching and the one-on-one -on -one work that I do. And I highly recommend that all of you go find KJ <laughs> and engage her in conversation somehow, because it is, as you can hear, deep fun and a delightful transformation every time we have a conversation. Thank you, Leela. You're so welcome. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for this episode of Power Pivot. It's been a pleasure. We will see you in the next episode. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Power Pivot. We'd love to hear from you. Please rate and subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To support Power Pivot and get early access to new episodes, go to intensivesinstitute.com slash Patreon. For information about coaching and consulting, or to book Leela for a talk or workshop, go to intensivesinstitute.com.